0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll discuss a new study looking at how marijuana use in breastfeeding parents can affect breast milk.
1: We don't know what a safe amount of THC exposure is
0: during pregnancy.
2: Plus, we'll hear how a Wyoming women's basketball team is making history heading into the March Madness tournament.
0: And we'll hear how federal floodplain maps are being updated with new information in Colorado.
2: That and more coming up.
0: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin
2: O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Nearly a decade ago, Colorado and Washington became the first states to legalize recreational marijuana. Since then, 13 more states have followed suit. But years after legalization, Colorado lawmakers are still hammering out details of how the drug can be cultivated, sold, and consumed.
0: Some of those details are up for discussion in Colorado's current legislative session. On Wednesday, the state Senate passed a bill to make it easier for children with complicated medical conditions, such as epilepsy, to get cannabis-based medicine while in school. The bill, now headed to the House, would
2: allow school personnel at all Colorado school districts to administer cannabis-based medicine to students on school grounds. Under the current law, principals have discretion over whether personnel are allowed to do this.
0: And that's not the only marijuana legislation in the works. Colorado State Representative Yadira Caraveo has proposed a regulatory bill to cap THC content at 15 percent. That's the psychoactive compound in cannabis that gives users the feeling of being high. Caraveo has said she selected 15 percent because some data suggests anything higher than that can affect the developing brain.
2: That data is a part of the growing field of research on how THC impacts our health. And that takes us to our first conversation today about a new study at Children's Hospital College. Colorado
0: that found THC can stay in breast milk for up to six weeks after marijuana use. Here to discuss the study are two of the doctors who were involved in that research, Dr. Erica Wymore and Dr. Maya Bunick. Welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Wymore, I'll start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about this study and some of its conclusions? How was it conducted?
1: Dr. Bunick and I collaborated a couple of years ago to answer the question of how long can moms use marijuana and pump and dump so that there isn't any marijuana or THC in their milk. And that was really the impetus of this study. We started several years ago and had some challenges getting through the IRB, but our plan was to identify women at the time of delivery who had evidence of marijuana use by THC metabolites in their urine. And then we asked them to join our study and then we would follow them for six weeks, asking them to abstain from marijuana and then give us samples of their blood, their urine, and their breast milk to determine how long THC is expressed in the breast milk out of nearly 400 women, we only were able to recruit about 25 who agreed that they could abstain from marijuana use and and participate in this study. And what we found is among those 25 who we enrolled, less than half of that were able to actually abstain from marijuana for the duration of the study. So that in its first step was really concerning to us, that this demonstrated that women were using marijuana for a reason to help them cope with stress of pregnancy or pain or sleep problems in
0: pregnancy, and that it was really difficult for them to stop. It feels like this falls into such a gray area because with medicinal use of cannabis, it seems like it's a natural remedy to maybe morning sickness or something like that.
1: That's an excellent point, but we have found that there's not any data to support that it's efficacious for use for morning sickness. And certainly there is still that concern of, we don't know what a safe amount of THC exposure is during pregnancy. And actually the studies that were conducted several decades ago, when THC content in marijuana products was only 4%, found that there was a concern. And when those children reached school age or in adolescence, that they had issues with cognitive function, executive function, memory, and then early- signs of anxiety and depression.
0: Dr. Bunick, I'll ask you, why does it take THC so long to metabolize? Were the results different among different participants in the study? And if so, what were some of the variables?
3: Our moms reported pretty high chronic use, so three times a week during pregnancy. And THC is a lipophilic substance. It really does get stored in the fat content, both in breast tissue and in the milk. And so it's not surprising that it took that long for it to dissipate. A lot of the hospitals locally and across the country were saying moms could just abstain for two weeks and then pump and dump and then return to breastfeeding. So we were surprised that it lasts that long, just as we used to think it was okay to smoke and drink during pregnancy. I think until we have more data on how it really affects the infant brain, I think we should just really counsel women. It's just better to be super cautious.
0: And of course, there's that new bill that may be introduced at the Colorado State House to reduce the THC potency. Would that be a step in the right direction?
1: I think there's a lot of work going on right now looking at what the effects are of this higher potency marijuana products. There's a whole group at Boulder that we know that are doing that work, which is important work to do. I think what we have to recognize is for pregnant women and nursing mothers, they're a unique vulnerable population and we need to think of them in that way. And, you know, I'm hoping that mothers aren't using this higher potency product, but I think we don't have any idea what that effect of that higher potency is on anyone in five to 10 years. That's the concern that we have is that there's more chronic use of marijuana, almost a dependency. You're continuing to use that much. Let's find a way to help you cope with stress or pain, et cetera, in a different way that we know is safer. We're focusing on education earlier in pregnancy, education even before you are pregnant, of saying, you know what, if you're thinking about having a baby and you use marijuana for other symptoms, let's think about other ways that you can try to address those symptoms.
0: We've heard anecdotally about dispensaries almost catering to women who are pregnant saying, oh, feeling anxious, here's this.
1: Right. There was an interesting study by some of our colleagues here on campus that studied 400 dispensaries here in Colorado to inquire about what they would recommend for morning sickness. And it was really interesting that the majority of either the retail or the medical marijuana dispensaries recommended H.C. for morning sickness. The same researchers repeated this in Canada. And in Canada, they have a very robust public health initiative in regards to the rollout of marijuana. And in that study, 90% of the dispensaries recommended refraining from marijuana use during pregnancy.
0: I'll direct this one to Dr. Bunick. There is a real scarcity of solid data and research on the effects of cannabis on the human body in general. I think that leads to a lot of confusion for people who are trying to figure out how to use cannabis responsibly. I'm wondering why is there this lack of data and was your own desire to do this study hindered at all? Prior to the
3: legalization of marijuana, it was impossible to get approval to do such studies. In the next three or four years, I suspect we will have much more information and now that there's 31 states that have marijuana legalized in Mexico and Canada, hopefully more research will start to be in place. But there's a lot of protections and rightfully so. Even in our own IRB, they did not want us testing the babies because if the babies ended up being positive during the course of the study, we would have had to refer them to social services. So we just only tested the mothers
0: Lastly, for any breastfeeding parents who are listening to this and are just unsure, what advice do you have? When is a safe time for them to use marijuana products?
3: I support a lot of moms with breastfeeding and breastfeeding issues. And we really want babies to have exclusive breast milk for the first six months and up to a year of life. And I think it's a really short time in the whole scheme of things, it's just probably a really good idea to use caution, just like we do with other substances we do with medication. So I would just really encourage moms to find some other methods
1: during this important year of their baby's life. And I would concur with Dr. Bionic in regards to recommending breastfeeding. We, we know that that nutrition is, is best for babies. So really planning for that parenthood planning for breastfeeding, just like we do when we're planning to have a baby doing everything we can to to stay healthy. And, and if you recognize that you have reasons or symptom relief that you're trying to address, maybe talking with your provider about other alternatives.
0: It makes me think how we come up with a birth plan, but maybe not really one after that.
1: You know, Maya and I are both from the pediatric standpoint, and we're seeing these challenges at the time of delivery. So at that point in time, it's really hard to say, wow, you're sleep deprived, you have this new baby, and now we want you to stop using something you've been using reliably throughout pregnancy. We know that one of the biggest challenges that mothers face right now is mental health challenges. So we really need to be very proactive in providing education and identifying women that have questions or concerns or need more support because that's our job.
3: The other thing anecdotally, when we presented our research in Amsterdam, where marijuana has been legalized for over 25 years, they were curious as to why we had to prove that marijuana was in breast milk. In their country, as soon as a mom is pregnant or nursing, they automatically avoid that. And everyone in the family avoids using marijuana during that period of time. They sort of have adopted that as part of their use of marijuana in that country. And so I mean, I think some common sense goes a long way.
0: Dr. Erica Wymore and Dr. Maya Bunick, thank you both so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you for having
3: us.
2: listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Federal floodplain maps are being updated with new information. Property owners have the opportunity to review these maps and once they reach the comment stage, they'll have the chance to appeal any changes. These maps have an impact on flood insurance rates, local building codes, and more. Here to explain a bit more about the process is Ken Amundsen, Managing Editor of BizWest. Ken, thank you so much for being here.
4: Happy to be here.
0: Let's start with some background on what these maps are used for. Um, Is it for potential buyers to to be aware of any possible flood hazards before they buy?
4: Obviously, there are, are dangers to property owners who develop in areas that are in low-lying possible areas that could be flooded. So the maps help, that, uh, help those property owners know what's ahead of them if they decide to buy in a certain area. There's a number of other reasons for the flood maps too. Uh, you know, a couple of the major ones are that uh, in order for communities to receive disaster assistance after a flood they have to be part of the National Flood Insurance Program. And of course, uh, you know, once the maps are approved and so forth, then uh, property owners have access to federal flood insurance, which they wouldn't otherwise have access to.
0: How much land are we talking about here? How much of the Front Range is considered to be in a floodplain?
4: Uh, That's a good question. I don't know what that number would be in terms of a percentage, but if you look at how the Front Range developed, especially the Northern Front Range, virtually every community is on a river. Whether it's the Poudre or the Saint Vrain or the Thompson or the Little Thompson or, or uh, Boulder Creek or you know whatever it might be, um, and so all of those communities are prone to floods from time to time.
0: One thing that's really interesting is that you know with these updated maps, sometimes properties that used to be in a flood zone aren't anymore, or or vice versa. What changes? How does that happen?
4: That's also a good question, and I think there are probably a couple of reasons how that happens. One is that when there is a flood, the the course of the river changes. You know, if you drive down Highway 287 in Northern Colorado, going down uh, Main Street of Longmont, uh, you can see that the river, the channel changed where, where the river crossed the highway there. And, you know, that happens all the time with floods. So that's part of it. And uh, secondly, as development happens, sometimes the course of water will change. And so, uh, uh, that also will impact whether a, a future flood map includes a particular property.
0: Many of us remember only too well the 2013 floods. They were certainly catastrophic, and I'm wondering if that event had any impact on the remapping process.
4: The, the people who did the the surveys for the new flood maps say that the that those maps are not predicated on the 2013 floods. Uh, however, it had to be in the back of their minds as they you know, were putting things together. But yet there are areas uh, that flooded in 2013 that are not included in the zone. For example, I think out by the Mariana Butte golf course, there was some flooding. And those areas are not included in the flood map this time around.
0: It sounds like the comment stage will be reached very soon, what should property owners know about the process of reviewing these maps and then possibly appealing any changes?
4: once they open the door to uh, to a protest of the of the uh, flood maps, uh, property owners will have ninety days to uh, appeal you know what has been put down onto the maps. During that 90-day period, their appeals have to be based upon mathematical errors and technical errors, things like that, or um, changes in the property that they can demonstrate um, have taken the property out of the flood zone, for example. You know, a property owner might have put in significant fill in an area that would raise buildings and so forth out of the flood zone. So those types of things um, can be appealed during uh, that 90-day period.
0: And what's the best process for appealing?
4: I'm told that the uh, the best place to start an appeal would be at your uh, city offices, city engineers' offices. They were the ones who were involved in the process. and outside firm. Uh, outside engineering firm actually did the survey work, but they worked very, very closely with each of the engineering offices for the cities.
0: Ken Amundsen is managing editor of BizWest. You'll find a link to this story, including a link to the preliminary map site at KUNC.org. Ken, thank you so much for joining us.
4: You're welcome, Aaron.
2: Last year, March Madness was canceled due to the pandemic. But this year, the NCAA tournament is back, and more than 100 teams will be fighting for both the women's and men's national basketball title. Earlier this week on the show, we heard how the CU men's basketball team was approaching the tournament after a record-breaking season. But the Buffs aren't the only regional team coming in hot to the tournament. The Mountain West News Bureau's Stephanie Serrano reports that at Wyoming, the women's team is making history.
5: The Wyoming Cowgirls just won their first ever Mountain West Tournament Championship. That's the Cowgirls basketball team during their post-game celebration in the locker room. We won. We get to hang a banner in our in our gym like we we did it. Quinn Whiteman has been a basketball player since elementary school. She remembers playing in the YMCA league as a nine or a ten-year-old.
3: It wasn't like a tryout or anything. It was everyone play. There's a bunch of kids on the
5: team. And now she's a skilled collegiate player with the Cowgirls. Her team beat the University of Las Vegas in the first round, but they still have to face Boise State in the second round. That women's basketball program has dominated the Mountain West tournament for the last several years, winning four championships in a row.
3: I was very nervous. And then after we got past them, I was just kind of
5: like, okay, like
3: we got this,
5: this is our time. Then it was on to defeating Fresno State for the Mountain West title.
3: We might not have the best individual players, but
5: the way that we play as a team, I think just propelled us to to make it to the championship game and then end up winning. Wyoming played an intense defensive game, which forced Fresno State out of its comfort zone on offense. And that win means the Cowgirls now have an automatic spot in the single elimination national tournament, a.k.a. March Madness. The big thing is that you you know you get to put on that uniform one more time. That's Heather Izell, the Cowgirls' associate head coach. Ezel played college ball and made it to the national tournament back in 2009. Her team didn't win back then, but they did make it to the top eight.
3: You get to walk out with your teammates and play the game you love one more time. You know, I still talk to teammates, and that's what we talk about. Hey, those memories behind the scenes, you know, in the locker room, in the hotels, All that is just what it's all about.
5: And now she gets to do it all again, but this time as the coach.
3: You're so proud for these kids, everything they've done. You're so happy for them because they're the ones out there competing.
5: And and yeah, we put a game plan, but they're the ones that have to do it. And it's been a tough year. Dealing with COVID and the uncertainty of every game. That's cowgirl Tommy Olson. Getting tested in the morning three times a week and then making sure that everything is taken care of, going to practice, going home, going to school. The coaches knew this would be a tough season, so to help motivate the team, the staff surprised the players with personalized videos from their family members.
2: Hey Tom, this is mom. This is dad. Hey, we just want to wish you and the rest of the cowgirls the best of luck this season have been working since March. That's Tommy's
5: mom and dad. And get this. Her mom also played basketball for Wyoming. Tommy says it's been exciting to compare her and her mom's basketball experiences. Our game is similar. She was like always super active on defense. And so I feel like I kind of get that from her. Gerald Mattinson is the team's head coach. He's been working with the women's basketball program for nearly a decade.
4: I think you see a league, a conference that values women's sports, women's basketball.
5: And he's noticing a change in player development.
4: I've seen a more competitive base in in the women's side. You know, you're starting to see teams who, um, you know, we're allowed 15 scholarships uh, you're you're getting you're getting 15 good players that can compete for positions.
5: He says this is because girls have more options to play in different club leagues now and can refine their skills at a younger age. On Monday, the Cowgirls hosted a watch party to listen to the official national selection show on national TV to see who they're up against. Welcome to the NCAA Women's Selection Special. We've got UCLA taking on Wyoming. Now Mattinson's team of competitive women will head to the national championship.
4: You know, we'll defend, we'll, we'll play really, really hard, but everything else, you know, breathe it all in, take it all in.
5: Mattinson says he really hopes his players will remember this moment. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Stephanie Serrano.
2: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org.
0: From time to time, we ask you what you think or how you feel about something in our weekend email newsletter. Earlier this month on the show, we shared two stories about American football, one on the life and legacy of former NFL player and University of Northern Colorado alum Vincent Jackson after his recent and sudden death. The other was on the dangers of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a degenerative brain disease often found in the brains of deceased football players.
2: We asked Dr. Chris Nowinski, researcher at the CTE Center at Boston University, about whether or not we should still play football.
4: If you are going to choose to get hit in the head, let's make sure that people doing it are old enough to understand the risks that they're exposing themselves to. And if they still want to do it at that stage, you know, yeah, they they can do it. But let's also make that as safe as possible.
2: We also asked you, the listeners, for your thoughts on football safety. At what age is it safe to start playing the game? How can we make it safer? And with all of the dangers to health, is this beloved American sport still worth it?
0: John from Fort Collins said he's heard experts say that athletes should be at least 12 years of age before playing the game. Judy felt
2: there is no, quote, safe age to
0: play. But she says that if the sport must be played,
2: 18 should be the required age, and players should be equipped with motorcycle-safe helmets, pads, shin
0: guards, mouthpieces,
2: and neck guards.
0: Ray, on the other hand, suggested the only acceptable safety measure would be switching to flag football and abandoning tackling altogether.
2: Even with these suggestions, most who wrote in agreed that the dangers of significant brain damage make the game as a whole not worth the risks. Barbara wrote in to say that parents should never encourage their children to play football or any sport that can result in frequent head trauma. She suggests that parents should try to keep their kids from watching the sport and get them interested in other things.
0: And while Scott wrote in about his fears that football will remain popular due to financial incentives. Ann is confident that the sport is on its way out the door. She wrote that insurance costs and the risks of litigation will be the catalyst for football's demise. We
2: heard from all these listeners through our weekly newsletter. And if you're not already receiving it, it's easy to sign up at KUNC.org. Just log on and look for the graphic that says Colorado Email Edition. Put in your email address and you're set. (laughs)
0: our show for today on the next colorado edition we'll dive into the multi-state controversy stirred up by the new meat-free holiday recently declared by governor jared polis i'm aaron o'toole and
2: i'm henry zimmerman our production staff includes tess novotny alana schreiber and ray solomon brian larson is our executive producer
0: thanks for listening this is colorado edition from kunc